If you're a horror movie fan, and I assume you are if you're listening to the Horror Lab, I have no doubt you've seen a vampire movie or two. Some of my favorite horror movies are vampire flicks. The Lost Boys, 30 Days of Night, and Fright Night, which is in my top 25, are a few that come to mind. Here in the Horror Lab, we've dissected at least one vampire movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, we're about to dissect a second. Let the right one in. When Chris and I texted before recording, he described this movie as the anti-Dracula. And he's right. It's incredibly unconventional. If only because the main characters are two 12-year-olds. Or a 12-year-old boy named Oscar and an immortal vampire stuck in the body of a 12-year-old named Ellie. A chance encounter leads to an unlikely friendship and an unbreakable bond. Let the Right One In is a beautifully filmed, emotionally impactful film. At times, it's heartbreaking and bleak, and at other times, it's surprising and thrilling. But don't let that fool you. At the end of the day, Ellie is a vampire in need of a constant supply of fresh blood. While not as over-the-top violent as other vampire movies, looking at Chew 30 Days a Night, Let the Right One In uses its violence effectively. In fact, the scenes where Ellie attacks are among the most memorable of any vampire movie out there. If you've never seen Let the Right One In, you're in for a real experience. Pay attention to the colors in the movie, how muted and neutral they are. Pay attention to the environment, how cold and bleak it is. Pay attention to the adults, how aloof and disinterested they are. And pay attention to Oscar and Ellie, how their relationship blossoms amidst the harshness of their surrounding. Let the Right One In sticks with you long after the movie ends. And trust me, the closing scenes are stunning and worth it. Remember, our goal in the Horror Lab is to enhance your viewing experience, not replace it. Give this one a careful watch. It's well worth your time. Everybody, welcome to the Horror Lab podcast, where we dissect the best in horror movies each and every week. I'm your co-host Will, and alongside me, I've got my co-host Chris. And guys, we are jumping into the 21st episode of the Horror Lab. Though I've been slacking a little bit the last couple of weeks because my work life has been utter chaos. It's a horror movie. It's it is. It's like it, real life parallels fiction sometimes, or vice versa. However, the saying goes. That has been my life. So we've got a couple of uh, really great episodes on deck. We just published episode 19, The Host. Episode 20, which is Midsummer, is in, I'm about halfway through the editing. Should be available in the next day or two. And then uh, here we are today, episode 21. We are doing a super unique vampire movie that Chris, in a text earlier today, said was anti-Dracula. And I responded, I said, it's, I, I have described it as un-Dracula. Um, I'm not even sure unique is the right word. We are going to be reviewing, doing a deep dive into Let the Right One In from 2008. Guys, it is fantastic. Just a, a such a good movie. Can't it's wait. It's number two on my list. I, I can understand why, to be honest. Yeah. Good. 
If you've never seen it, we're going to jump right into synopsis and all that here, and just because it's a deep movie, we want to get to some of the the larger meteor discussion. If you've never seen Let the Right One In, absolutely stop this podcast here. Give us a pause. Go watch it. It's uh, I watched it on Amazon Prime. I had to do a, like a free trial subscription to uh, one of the channels. Subscribed, canceled, watched the movie like five times. You can do that. Otherwise, you just rent it. Definitely be attentive as you watch it. Pay attention to the colors in the movie. Pay attention to the score in the movie. Uh, all of it is is very intentional. Uh, it's a very purposeful sort of vampire movie. Yeah. Uh, n- not an action-oriented film, although there are points of action. Uh, not a super scary movie, although there are ho- horror elements. Just really unique, really well done. I'm excited, so give it a watch. Give us a listen. Again, our goal is to enhance your viewing experience, not replace it. And so that's what we do here at the Horror Lab. We're going to dive into some themes. Chris, before we jump into that, can you give us a... A synopsis. What is this movie about? What do we need to know? Yeah, it's like we were saying, it's an anti-Dracula movie. And so most Dracula movies or vampire movies, a lot of them are romances. And so at the heart of this movie is a romance between two 12-year-olds. At least one seems like a 12-year-old. It's based in Sweden. And it's cool because this is the second movie we're reviewing that's depicted in Sweden. And so it's a movie about Oscar. He's a bullied boy who's a... Dad is probably an alcoholic, he's away from the home, and his mom is kind of not really there. He forms a budding friendship with Ellie, who has an interesting relationship with this older man, and it turns out she's a vampire. It turns yeah. out she might, she is actually uh, a he. In the novel, I read that um, Ellie was actually a boy who was castrated by vampires. Yes. And Ellie's not only physically stuck as a 12-year-old, she's mentally stuck as a 12-year-old too. Yep. And so... Yeah, they form this budding relationship. It's an interesting inversion of a lot of the, the vampire tropes where it's like uh, vampires are like very sexual beings. But, you know, there are a number of uh, scenes where Oscar and Ellie don't have their clothes on and there's no hint of sexuality at all, which is which is really interesting. Oscar is bullied by a group of teenage boys. It turns out one of his the main bullies, he's actually bullied by his own brother. And um, Oscar tries to stand up. And they try to hurt him. So I'm skipping across a lot of... <laughs> I'm skipping a lot because a lot happens. It's a pretty long movie. It's almost two hours. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Oscar goes steady with Ellie. And then Ellie loses her guardian, a dude named Hawken, I think. That's how, I That's how I heard it in my yeah, head. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a really interesting relationship. Off. Yeah, they have a really interesting relationship. In the novel, at least, we, we learned that you know he's a pedophile. We're not quite sure what the relationship is like in this movie. They hint that Hawken has some very deep emotional ties to Ellie, but we're not quite sure what it is. It seems disturbing, but we don't know. He's like Ellie's servant almost. And yeah, there's like a number of people that Ellie kills to feed. And that kind of creates a lot of drama in this movie. But towards the end, Oscar's bullies try to kill him in a, in a swimming pool. They try to like bully him, you know, force him to like, hold his breath for like three minutes and uh there's this really awesome scene where if you haven't seen it i'm gonna say it again stop and go watch the movie yeah he just massacres all the bullies and yeah there's this awesome like um close-ups of uh oscar and ellie kind of smiling at each other <laughs> it's wild yeah. it's as guys it's as wild as it sounds yeah, and it's touching too yeah for sure and uh, it, it's kind of Ellie's way of returning the favor because uh, 
Oscar protects Ellie, who's being hunted by a man named Lockheed, who is the friend of a man that Ellie killed, and also the uh, boyfriend of a woman that uh, Ellie bit, who uh, turned into a vampire, almost died by suicide, because she didn't want to become a vampire. And at the end of the movie, there's a really cool scene where they're on a train. Oscar runs away with Ellie, who's in a, in a coffin, and uh, they communicate in Morse code, little kisses. And that's kind of how the movie ends. Yeah, it's, uh, I realize, listening to the summary of the movie, it can seem like it's a super awkward movie. And, and there are definitely awkward moments and points. Um, and so I, when I found out that the movie had a, a novel that was the sort of the source material for it, uh, I did some reading online and found out that Ellie's caretaker, or Hawken, I don't know how to say his name, I don't know how to pronounce it, that he, it, it sort of implied that he was once a 12-year-old boy who was sort of infatuated with her, and um, he becomes her caretaker, but he grows old because he's, he's alive, he's living, he's human, and she stays in this static 12-year-old state as a, a vampire. And so the movie maybe hints a little bit more at, at sort of a pedophilic relationship, which obviously is condemnable okay if we have we have to like come out right and say that unfortunately we have to come out right and say just just to leave no no uh no questions unanswered okay but the the book sort of gives us this from what i understand i haven't read the source material but from what i from what i read the book sort of gives us this idea that he too was a 12 year old boy who you know oscar's age who was infatuated and then as he grew older he sort of grew into a caretaker role and so it's an interesting play because it Maybe there's a uh, maybe there's two horror movies going on here at once. One is uh, the actual movie itself, but the other is the perspective of the movie, which is inside the mind of a twelve year old boy, which sounds terrible. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like I mean I was a twelve year old kid at one point, and I don't remember too far back at that age, but uh, it, it seems like it's a minefield of just wild things, and so <laughs> and so this movie sort of gives us uh, maybe tunnel vision into one specific view. Uh, from this 12-year-old's eyes. Chris, I, I thought the movie was sort of open-ended as far as interpretation goes. I, I feel like you could you could look at a thousand things in the movie and, and interpret it, uh, you know, in exponential number of ways. So I'm curious to know what stuck out to you as maybe a, a primary theme or primary themes in the movie. Where did you see this movie taking you as a viewer? Yeah, man. I thought relationships was like a huge thing. Not just the adults are all kind of absentee. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, the father is probably some kind of addict, alcoholic. The gym teacher, he's like clueless and he's so easily fooled, you know, with that, with that fire that the bullies put out to distract him. There's like the impact of bullying and how, how it affects us. It was also interesting, just isolation and loneliness. Russian is like a huge thing. So the fact that, you know, Ellie's 12 years old, doesn't know her parents anymore. Her, her caretaker dies. They also use, like, you know, they're filming in 1980s Sweden. And, you know, the buildings are really sparse, even with the landscapes and then all the negative space in the shots. And it's cold. It's wintertime, right? And so it's Always like, snowing, it seems it's like. Always snowing, There's a lot yeah. of snow in yeah. the movie. It's like a really sad place to be in. Yeah. They're, you know, there are characters like uh, Yosta, the recluse who lives with the cats. Oh, that you was a terrible scene, by the way. Oh, which one? The one where she's 
eaten by the cat or attacked by the cat. Oh, yeah. oh that's, okay. That's so bad. We'll get Ooh, there. <laughs> <laughs> Even the use of uh, the mirrors and the windows, how it just kind of traps the characters into like almost a picture frame. They're just like all separated. And so it's uh, it's interesting just how lonely everyone is. Yeah, it's good. Loneliness is definitely something I, I felt watching it. Yeah. And, and it sort of gives you, the, the way the movie shot, the, the colors of the movie, right? It's, it's sort of this like bland, sort of muted color palette. Everything is gray and beige and, you know, off-white. With, I think, a couple of exceptions where the violence comes in, it's super bright red and yeah. obviously for blood, that kind of thing. But generally, the movie's pretty, pretty dull. I felt the loneliness as much as I, I like, watched it. Um, you get the sense that everything about this area is just depressed. The people, the weather, the life circumstances, the conversations are stale. People just seem down in the dumps and bored, right? And so it's interesting to see that played out from a 12-year-old perspective versus an adult, right, who the 12-year-old is experiencing loneliness because he's being bullied. He's sort of uh, I don't say neglected, but he he's sort of on his own a lot of, a lot of times. Can't really, you don't get the sense that he can turn to anybody for comfort yeah. or support or encouragement or anything. And so he's just on his own doing his own thing. Did you think this was a romance? I think it was. You think so? Okay. Yeah, I, I think it was a romance. It could be like a queer romance, but I think the way the director created the story, I wouldn't say it's sterile, but it's pretty innocent. Because, you know, these are 12-year-olds yeah. who, I, I mean, this kind of alludes to another thing just about childhood and innocence and, you know, how we lose it or perspective on it. You know, even the way the Oscar approaches violence, I, I feel like he's not doing it from an intentional evil way. Um, he's just being kind of taught it and he likes violence, but from a childlike perspective, does that make sense? Yeah. And so um, I, I think it is a romance. I think there's something between... Ellie and Eli, that's really sweet. Okay. Um, almost seems uncorrupted from the world, but sure. ends up getting corrupted just because of all the evil Around darkness yeah, yeah, found in the adults. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I think I went back and forth. It was like a, you know, like a tug of war in my heart. Yeah. Like one minute I, I sort of went into it with the romance idea in mind. Yeah. And then there's a part of me that, that, moved away from it after a little bit, but I saw, I guess I sort of see it. I mean, I definitely see it. It's not that I don't, but it almost feels like it's this, uh, forbidden love. Yeah. Almost because, you know, Ellie is this, she's not a romantic figure, I guess in yeah. the film. She's sort not of at all. Un unromantic, a romantic. Yeah. Like a complete subversion of just the Dracula yeah. trope. Yeah. Yeah. It's like where, no, okay, so, so I promised myself I wasn't going to bring it up, but I, I'm going to break that promise. Bram Stoker's Dracula is like sexuality on steroids. Yeah. It's like Gross. if you took romance and you <laughs> gave it, you know, if you gave it crack just 24 seven and that's what was produced. This one feels like it's, uh, it's almost, the romance is almost asexual a little bit yeah where it's completely not sexualized and he, i think she even goes so far as to say to to oscar like hey you can't be my friend you know that's that was to me that stuck out as like a super important line because if it sort of put them their relationship on a track but 
I mentioned that it's hard for me to interpret the movie because I felt like there were massive amounts of interpretations of that one line. Like, is she saying we can't be friends because we're going to be romantic partners and because we're, we're going to fall in love? Is she saying you can't be my friend because like, there's going to come a point where I'm going to be tempted to eat you. <laughs> like and she was, you know, yeah. and she was right. And yeah. there were a couple of scenes where she's like, you need to go now. Is she saying you can't be my friend because it's this tragic sort of relationship where she's undead and, and immortal and inevitably he's going to die at some point. Uh, it's hard to, to narrow down and just yeah. sort of zero in on one particular thing. So yeah. I think knowing that I, I felt most comfortable, I think, because again, we're talking about two 12 year olds. I felt most comfortable moving away from the romantic side of the movie towards a more less romantic side of the yeah. movie. I mean, I was trying to think about crushes I had when I was that age and they weren't necessarily sexual. Sure. Right? They weren't sexualized. And so, yeah, it's interesting when you, you do find yourself attracted to someone at that age because it, it is kind of inexplicable. And you just kind of go go with the flow almost. And so, like, um, you know, Ellie is kind of hesitant and almost resistant to going steady. And, you know, she asks Oscar, would you still like me if I'm not a girl, if I'm a right. boy? And Oscar's just like, oh, yeah, well, sure, why not? Let's just go steady. It's okay. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if it points to the fact that maybe even at that age that Maybe this is just human desire, human nature to say, you know, we we're drawn to people that we want we want to spend time with. You know, maybe apart from like romantic feelings or even sexual feelings, just this this idea that, you know, and and again, looking at the movie, he's he's been bullied his whole life, right? And so he's he's got very few uh healthy attachments or relationships that he can, you know, turn to, right? There are a few people that he would probably trust. And so for all of a sudden to now have this individual that's, you know, that's interested in spending time with you, I, I can see that that initial like draw, right? That pull to that person to say, hey, this person is safe. This person understands me. This person wants to spend time with me, vice versa. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, man. Like, and maybe that's the maybe that's the genius of the movie is that it, it it does leave all of these loose ends wide open for you to sort of choose your own adventure. Yeah, you know, and it maybe in some ways point it look at look at each journey as sort of a mirror to say, well, how would I, you know, or how have I reacted in similar situations, or how would I react in a similar situation? I don't know. It it sort of leaves that open for interpretation that I, yeah. I appreciate. I'm frustrated with at times, but I I appreciate at the same time. Yeah. There's definitely no easy answers. No, there's not because to any it, of the questions. because you have to ask the question too. Let's if it's not if she is let's say hesitant to go steady, right? To sort of have that romantic attachment to him. Does the end where she gets revenge on his bullies, but she's also someone who needs blood to survive. Is that was that last scene done out of pure intention like in friendship and in love or is that self-serving to say like this was just prime opportunity for me to get all the blood i could fill my do you see what i'm saying like yeah yeah then again they're kids right and especially because you know well you know this people don't their brains aren't fully developed until like the age 25 and yeah so 12 year olds aren't gonna make rational decisions uh that's fair just, yeah and so thinking from the perspective of a 12 year old she's like defending her friend that's fair 
I'm thinking way too much like an old crotchety adult <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> and you know, that's a good point too, because maybe that that speaks to some of the biases that we come in with as viewers. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. That's a really yeah. I feel like that's a really interesting thought experiment. Yeah. And like, you know, like college kids when they, you know, have all this access to drinking and sex yeah. and drugs, they just go wild. And, yeah. you know, we're like, why why would you do that? And I'm like, they don't have any inhibitions. Right. Their brains aren't fully developed. And right. so even you know, even as a thirty two year old at like it's eleven PM, I smell McDonald's. I'm like, ooh, that, that smells good, even though I know it's going to give me, like, massive heartburn for 24 hours. Yeah, it doesn't get better at almost 40, man. Like, (laughs) there are times where I'm like, it's like 11, like yesterday, it was 1130, the grocery store at the corner is closed, but I'm like, I could run to the sheets (laughs) and get, you know, uh, a sampler tray with, you know, mozzarella sticks and fried foods and like, you know, a Red Bull at almost midnight, you know. So the I, I get the... The sort of impulse side of it too. Let's let's talk, man. Let's talk about the loneliness side of it because I felt like that was the mood of the like the the tone of the movie was just yeah. bl- it was bleak. Everything was bleak around Ellie and Oscar's characters, right? And yet they're so they sort of serve as the spark or the light in in the movie. But let's talk about the the bleakness of it all, like the the backdrop of depression or loneliness, despair. Like, it almost felt like where Ellie and Oscar made me moving with with some purpose. Everybody else in the movie is just sort of on autopilot, almost disinterested in yeah. the goings on around them. Right. So how 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 do we get there, man? Like how do as people how do we go from being vibrant 12-year-olds, right? Preteen teenagers to and I realize this is a massive question with a lot of ideas attached to it, maybe more nuanced than any podcast could provide, but how do we go from 12-year-olds juxtaposed with like grown adults who are just night and day different from one yeah. another in terms of energy, outlook, that kind of thing. Man, if you asked me 3 years 3 years ago, I probably have a lot of answers off the top of my head. <laughs> but now I'm like an age where everyone thinks they're a thought leader. I'm like, this is all, this is all bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> based, on what I, based on what I've seen in the movie, it seems like this is just my interpretation of the movie. Some of it's chosen, I think. Okay. I think, you know, with Hawken, when he's at the restaurant and he's near Lockie and Virginia and that group of friends, they, they invite him to become a part of their friendship circle. Right. But he chooses not to. Uh, Ellie doesn't really love him. We're not sure. I guess it's it's sort of like you know I've I've heard it said. I probably even said it too that there there are times where folks feel lonely even though they're in a room full of people, right? Yeah. And I guess this movie maybe plays on that a little bit where you've got a, a community of people who are conversing with one another and and you know seemingly have some sort of relationship beyond just hey you know when they pass each other on the street. But they just seem like they're lonely amidst the crowd. I don't know, man. I, I, I'm just I'm I'm thinking through it. There's such a difference between the adults and the kids in the movie. The kids, yeah, they just seem to have an energy about them. And maybe maybe that's the difference between you know a sense of innocence and maybe the the trauma of the world you know beating you down. Yeah, I thought that was really well done. Like because you you can't help but think right. 
Ellie has this first caretaker who ultimately dies. He's sort of a recluse, keeps, keeps to himself. But now you have Oscar, who I interpreted at the end, by the time we got to the end of the movie, that Oscar was essentially not, not going to be her lover or romantic partner, but ultimately was going to take over that caretaker role. Yeah. And soon enough, like he was going to go from this 12-year-old who was, you know, maybe infatuated with Ellie to now this adult who is just running on autopilot yeah. Providing meat for her to kill and eat. You know, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I thought Ellie was gonna turn Oscar into a vampire. I thought so. There were a couple of times where I, Yeah, 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 yeah. Where I, I definitely I, thought I definitely thought it. I think the, the screenwriter who's also the author of the the novel, uh, I think he wrote a short story as a sequel. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh Ellie turns Oscar into a vampire. In that one? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, interesting. I kind of like that she didn't. It almost uh, it almost gave you the sense of like she has still some measure of humanity to her. Yeah. Where she's not just running on like vampiric instinct. Yeah. Oh, you know? interesting. And yeah. so it's like, you know, when he cuts his hand and the, the blood drips onto the floor. Yeah. And you have this like 10 second, 10, 15 seconds of tension where she's looking at him. He's looking at her. He's smiling almost like, yeah. here I am. And then she, you know, starts slurping up the blood off the concrete and she looks up, tells him to go. Oh, there was a good horror element in that scene. As she is drinking the blood off the floor, she looks up at him and it is very clearly a boy's face. I thought it was an older woman. Or an older woman. Yeah, you, okay, yeah. I, I, I looked at it and I, I think I replayed it like four or five times. Yeah. And I walked away thinking, oh, yeah. if, if she was a boy who turned into a girl as a result of... <clears throat> the castration, then is that a throwback to when she yeah. was a teen? You see what I'm saying? So like, I, I thought it might've been like an, a little Easter egg to the novel. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a second time that face comes out. Um, oh. It was when um, Oscar wants to find out what it ha what happens when you don't formally invite a vampire inside and Ellie just starts pleading. And when Ellie pleads Oscar, you know, please be be like me for a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, kill your... Uh, Kill your victimizers. Yeah, she, she that face changes again. Oh, I don't think I picked up on it. Yeah, it's just the eyes though, so it's really subtle. Ah, yeah. I I thought that was super super creepy because I I didn't see it coming. Creepy. I mean, just completely. And and some of the horror elements you don't quite see coming. Yeah, as graphically as they show up, like yeah, the movie's so subdued, almost for all of the runtime. But the the violent scenes or the scenes that are meant to capture your attention are so in your face. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I, I I thought it I thought that was great. I thought the uh, the use of of uh, camera work was terrific. You know, there there are a few times where you you actually see the violence on camera. Usually it's it's either done from a distance in the shadows or it's done behind a door or a wall. You know that scene towards the end where she. Uh, where she attacks him in the in the bathroom and the door is cracked and you just after a couple seconds see his bloody hand sort of come out to the hallway door you know the the yeah. wall that was terrific um, the scene in the pool you see the thrashing in the water but like yeah. it's fixated on his face yeah and then he comes up out of the water and it's just mangled bodies everywhere I know? love how we just kind of see the aftermath. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know that idea of innocence. It almost feels like she preserved his innocence as much as she could. Yeah. From the the trauma of what associating with her was going to become, you know. And and it, I'm going to reach, guys. Sometimes I reach when we talk about these movies. I'm going to make a reach, okay? But it almost feels like 
it's a play on uh, destiny or fate versus free will, where she is destined to be this vampire who is violent, right, and kills people and needs blood to survive. She preserves his sense of free will to choose to be with her. And so if later on in life, you know, he's exposed to the trauma of, of that attachment with her, it's his choosing versus her, like, forcing him into that situation. Maybe it's like, you know, I was forced. I don't want to force you. I got, I, I don't know. That thought crossed my mind a few times watching it. Um, even the idea of the violence, right? He's super hesitant to get revenge on his, you know, his, uh, the, those that are victimizing him, right? His, uh, his bullies. And so she sort of takes matters into her own hands. Like, I'm violent. I'm going to do violent things. Yeah. May as well but still preserve, I, I don't know. I, again, choose your own adventure, you know. I mean, it's interesting because Oscar is a really interesting character. You know, he, he's kind of macabre. He has like a scrapbook with the, uh, all the, the newspaper, newspaper clippings, clippings of yeah. like murders and serial killings. And so it, I'm like, is this dude be, going to become like a, uh, a psychopath? We don't know, right? <laughs> and we never see him do anything violent in the movie. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. But there's like there's a some, normal twelve year old. Yeah, but there seems is there the idea that he's a, a budding either serial killer or you know if he's a caretaker for Ellie, eventually he's going to have to be, you know, an accomplice in in murder. Yeah. You know, and so is that a foreshadowing of you know what his fate will become? We obviously don't know because yeah the movie ends right after the pool scene. He's still twelve, right? But it almost gives you that idea that hey the 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 uh, the future for him is with Ellie. Yeah. And you can almost pretty well assume what that's going to look like based on previous caretakers. Yeah. Life and situation. And it's interesting because we kind of get a hint of how many people she's killed over the years with all the, you know, trinkets and the puzzle, the Fabergé egg she has. The Fabergé eggs. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and all the money she has. It's, it's disturbing. And, um, and I don't, I don't know why, but I was making connection with, you know, like, uh, this might be controversial. But just with uh, mass shooters, you know, a lot of them are young, like 15, 16, 18. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, what they do is, like, completely evil, you know, taking people's lives away. But it also goes to show just the impact adults have on kids, you know? Yeah. Absentee kids, creating some systems where bullies run rampant and kind of create these monsters. Yeah, for um, sure. If adults just did the right thing. Ellie wouldn't have been created, you know. Lockie, it, it's it's interesting because Lockie, you know, when he tries to kill Ellie, we almost root for the kids, but we can, we can understand, you know, he's actually doing a good thing because he's going to prevent so many people from being murdered. It does it does leave you with these uh, ethical dilemmas, almost. You know, like do you root? Which who do you root for? Yeah. Both both outcomes are pretty bad, but yeah, is it the least of the two evils? Is it you know the the best of bad situation? Like how do you how do you navigate it? You know, and and I think you're, com- you know, talking about like mass shooters and, you know, obviously content warning in, in this discussion, we know it's sensitive, so we're not trying to be insensitive in discussing it. But it's almost like it, it sort of has that nature versus nurture sort of discussion to it, right? Are, are, you know, mass shooters, are they, you know, created by as a result of trauma or neglectful parents? Yeah. Or are they, you know, born that way and it, you know, unique set of circumstances sort of unlock that personality type i'm sure that there's probably a yes attached to both in some ways yeah and yet you mentioned it earlier that 
the adults in this movie, they're super absent. I mean, they're there, but they, they very literally turn a blind eye to, yeah. to things going on. You know, it's easier for, for a neighbor and a friend to conceal a body than it is to contact the police after yeah. witnessing a murder. Like, <laughs> and it's no, no second thought to do that. So it gives you a portrayal of adults who are preoccupied with their own stuff that they neglect to take care of. Maybe those who require a little bit more uh, support, maybe those who are a little bit more dependent or would yeah. be dependent on them, you know. And so we know trauma does wild things to to a human brain, right? It yeah. changes the, the the chemical composition of the brain, which then affects the the rest of the body, and then you know, depending on circumstances, can affect communities, you know, families, that kind of thing. So there's a there's a lot here, guys. We weren't kidding when we said the movie is deep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this emotionally it, there's very few movies horror movies or otherwise that I, I feel uh, emotional watching and then emotional after watching usually I, I get that sense of emotion when I'm watching like a tragedy and a main character dies and in this way that you're like no you know the green mile is an example of that oh, um, John <laughs> yeah I mean you know and in this movie I, I didn't have that same sense of like I want to cry as much as I felt burdened yeah. for the characters. Almost like a, a concern for their well-being. Like, what's going to happen to them? You know, and, and the, the child actors are just phenomenal in the role. Like, they embody the role so well. Yeah, it was, you know. They were really good. Oh, so good. And there was this this chemistry between them. Not, you know, not, not sexual chemistry, but just this, there was this, uh, they were on the same page. They knew sort of each other's movements and played off each other really well. And so there was this, uh, it was really just well done, the whole thing. The worst scene in the movie for me was the cats attacking. Yeah, it was it was terrible. Like, I'm not a huge fan of cats to begin with. Terrible as in, like, uncomfortable? Oh, terrible as in, like, maybe unlocked a new phobia for me? <laughs> Possibly? It was bad. Like, when that when that first cat bites her in the ankle, I'm like, nah, oh no, no. And then when they all start and she's like running into a back room and she's got 15 cats on her, nope. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that. Nope. Not going to happen. You know, when a cat usually jumps on your face, it's usually a comic scene, but they kind of like flipped on you. <laughs> this was terrible. It was a terrible scene. There are a few scenes in movies that I remember that are like that. And this is definitely one that's like, no, like I would probably watch this movie like again and fast forward. All the horror scenes are so iconic in this movie. They really are like yeah. And let's I'll never talk forget about Virginia's scream when she lights on fire. And yeah, just how intense that fire is. All right, so it's interesting you you bring up that scene because while I was watching this one, there was another horror movie re that I watched recently in the last couple months that also had sort of an emotional impact on me, and that was Saint Maud. Oh yeah. And Saint Maud deals with loneliness and like you know religious fanaticism in the face of you know loneliness or tragedy that kind of thing. But the very, and when I say the literal last second of St. Maud, how the movie ends, reminded me. I was like, I recalled that while she has them open the window and she bursts into flames. It had that same like, oh, sort of, you know, it evoked yeah. that sense of like shock and awe as I was watching it. The horror elements in the movie are on point, I think. Vampire movies, you sort of have the idea that they're going to lurk in the shadows, you know... They're coming. They're gonna eat you. They're gonna they're gonna get what they want, what they need. But this one, it's different, maybe because it's a it's a vampire kid. I, I don't yeah. know. But I felt like the horror elements 
really stuck out to me as being exceptional in this movie. Yeah, it, it's interesting because a lot of the, the most horrific scenes, apart from like the last scene in the pool, it's not really caused by the vampire. That's true. Yeah, so you know when Hawkins really messes up his last murder and he just decides to pour acid on his face so they can't you know figure out who he is. Yeah. Yeah, that tension that builds up until he pours that acid, and he even he he messes up in that because he only does half his face. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like a it's like a two face from yeah. uh, from the Dark Knight. Where yeah. it's like he's got this grimace on one side and yeah. a normal face on but, the other. But when they finally show his face, that was, that was a really cool reveal. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it was it was good. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of jump scares. Uh, the jump scares, if there are any, are that lighting on fire scene there's a really really well shot scene where someone's walking up the steps uh, like through a tunnel and she sort of jumps down from above him and takes him down and you know that that was really well well done the uh, the first murder scene is sort of shot from a wide panel view almost like you're looking down at at the at the scene from a window which obviously yeah. they reveal the character right his friend is watching the whole thing happen so they were just it was unique to watch the different perspectives on each of those scenes there's a, a scene where she attacks virginia the first you know when she bites her but the attack is happening in the left corner and you know her friend comes running up the stairs and kicks her off you don't actually see the the attack happening you just yeah. sort of hear the scuffle and the commotion like it was really really just terrific left a lot to the imagination left a lot to be interpreted yeah oh man what, life, what is kinda, life is kind of like that, right? It is. You know, I think one thing the movie does really well is just kind of pick up on the theme of communication, mm. you know, because the kids communicate via Morse code. And even when Ellie and uh, Oscar communicate, at least so dense and unclear, yeah, I feel like people are just kind of kind of like that. They don't really reveal their true feelings. There's so much subtext in, in, in conflict. You don't really know where people stand sometimes. You know, when Loki keeps like trying to convince Yosta to to uh, to go to the police, you know, Yosta makes some like really bad excuses not to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yosta says he doesn't want to get, you know, black slash in his face, but it also seems like he has serious agoraphobia. And because yeah. Loki's one of their friends saying, Oh, Yosta, I haven't seen you in so long, you know, where have you been? And so Yeah, people just don't know how to really communicate what's going on. And that's something Ellie and Oscar do really well. I think so too. Yeah. And, and maybe it's because, you know, the, the stakes for two 12 year olds are, uh, you know, lower than they are for, for adults in a sense. Right. I mean, as, as adults, we make decisions. We've got to consider the cost attached to those decisions. You know, we, we have to sort of take a wager and say, you know, what is, what is the pro cons, right? What are the, the, the uh, the benefits versus the consequence, like all those things, we we're thinking through those things almost second nature, like, and so there there are times where it feels like I can almost empathize with the with the person who feels like they have no choice but to make a decision that's different than what we would make, almost like, yeah. you know, and I'm not excusing the decision or the behavior as much as it's to say in real life, so much of real life is just so so chaotic at times. Yeah. And we want to have a grasp and a control on it, but the movie does a really good job, I think, of sort of subverting that idea of control. Yeah. And and almost letting you feel that that sense of un discomfort or uncomfort, yeah. discomfort with 
the chaos of it all. Like, you know, even even the uh, even Ellie's murders are not perfect. Yeah, it's super sloppy. They're very sloppy. Yeah. And it, it's yes, you know, she's a twelve year old girl, but at the same time, it's it's just life. Life is sloppy. Life is messy. Relationships are messy and sloppy. And and yeah. there is a point at which if you're if we're not careful and maybe not diligent or even hyper vigilant to a degree, yeah, there is a point at which life beats us down to a place where we become indifferent to the people and places and scenarios that we, you know, that are around yeah. us or that we find ourselves in. And to me, that's, that's a tragedy. That's a secondary tragedy in the movie is that sort of aimlessness that pervades the backdrop of, of the film. Yeah. You know, and I know I have to fight against that feeling at times where it's like, you just feel like sometimes you just want to throw in the towel, you know, like, yeah. Is it a fleeting moment? Yeah, of course. You know, the, there are times where it, it comes in and then it disappears, it dissipates. But then I'm, I know for a fact that some folks, they just, they're just so worn down and so worn out, you know, that they, they mirror some of the adults in this movie that it's like, how do we fight against it? Is there, a <laughs> is there a childlike innocence? Is the movie also saying, hey, w you know, there is something to be said positively yeah. for childlike innocence? Yeah amidst the chaos around you. I don't know. That's part of the interpretive sort of open-endedness of the movie that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can kind of connect it to the broader conversation of like a post COVID world where mm. there's so much institutional distrust on all sides of the political yeah, spectrum. For sure. And so, you know, whether you don't trust the Supreme court anymore, or you don't trust like the medical field anymore, you try to change but you feel like the system is against you, so you kind of just give up. Or you just turn to violence. What's the way to go forward? It's, it's kind of hard. I don't know. I, I know. Yeah. And, it, you know, it would be easy to sort of be reductionist and say, well, you know, if we just did X, Y, and Z or these three things or yeah. five steps to a better life. But, you know, it, it just doesn't – it's not that neat. Yeah. You it, know? It, it's not. And, you know, just personally, just an Asian person with anti-Asian attacks going on, there were, like, so many – different things going on because you know the most violent uh, attacks are at least in new york city they, they were committed by people who by uh people of color who, who have like who are mentally unstable and me mental illnesses there are no clean yeah. answers to that you know no and not. um no at the same time majority of asian attacks they're like verbal attacks because of it. and so so you know at the beginning of the pandemic you know i was like rah rah for everything but i'm like wow this is all very confusing and overwhelming yeah <laughs> But I would say, I, I, I had come, because, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter, and, you know, when I was working in a coffee shop or a Trader Joe's, you know, I, I had progressive friends who were like, yeah, I want kids, but how do I bring myself to the fact that I'm going to raise them in a world that's, like, falling apart? Yeah. I would say to them, and I did say to them, like, you know, I, I think it's kind of arrogant for older people to be like, I'm going to spare my children from this terrible world when... You know, there's a possibility that your kids might actually save the world, you know? Right, help change it, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, my three-year-old daughter gives me a lot of hope. I, I think, um, I, and I think it kind of ties back to the theme of the movie. People become bullies, people become lost when they kind of lose their grip on innocence. Yeah. Um, I think each succeeding generation is a lot smarter than the preceding one. And you just kind of have to connect to them. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm with you 100%, man. Like, I'm hitting middle age soon. And I find myself fighting cynicism more now than I did 20 years ago when I was a college student. Yeah. You know, and um, 
there's a part of me that feels like things won't change or they'll change for the worse. Yeah. But then I look at my own kids, you know, and they're, they're teenagers and preteens at this point, And it's like, there is hope there. There is a certain light that they carry that you, you pray, you hope that in, in the years ahead, that they'll be able to harness that, that light and make it useful in the world around them for the people around them, them you know, sort of mutual flourishing idea. Because I don't know what the alternative is, man. Like, I think, you know, again, tying it to the movie, the movie does a good job of showing the difference between the light of, especially Oscar's character, yeah. as this pure, innocent sort of, uh, you know, individual in, in, in the chaotic, dark, bleak, hopeless, depressed, despairing world around him. The movie doesn't ever take his innocence. Yeah. It preserves that. And, and you know, that I, I sort of see that, that last journey and in the closing scene is like the hope ahead. Like, and we don't know what, obviously what the story becomes with him and Ellie and all that, but at least as a, as a, as a character, he's, he's been preserved. He's, you know, had some measure of justice. Maybe I'm reaching for it, but I, I, I have hope that my own kids will see forms of justice yeah. and social progress in ways that, you know, me at 40, I haven't seen or that I have been slow to see. Yeah. Uh, definitely that generations before me have not seen, you know. And so, yeah, I think you're right, man. Like, it doesn't make it easier. Because, like, I still got to navigate however long I have left on this earth. I still have to navigate that stuff. <laughs> and I would love for it to be neat and tidy and, like, easy. And and yet, it's not. Yeah. I don't know, man. Th this movie left... It, it just left me thinking more than anything. And some movies are like that yeah it's not an easy watch no it definitely leaves you very unsettled i mean it kind of forces you to think right just with all the space because even with all that space uh with the buildings and the the swedish suburban landscapes mm -hmm. you still feel like kind of constrained like you're trapped i mean you're trapped you know this is why you know people just kind of doom scroll and they go away on vacations yeah they just leave the tv on all the time because you don't want to be trapped with your thoughts yeah but you, you need to kind of confront your thoughts. Yeah, you sort of drown out the uh, the internal noise, you know. But I, I also wonder if in doing that, sometimes we stunt or, or silence the sort of uh, like internal narrative that we need to have. Yeah. You know, the, the storytelling part of us, the imaginative part of us. Because I, I feel like to, to maintain a sense of imagination, right, to maintain a, a sense of uh, an internal voice, a storytelling voice also breeds hope down the line where you can sort of imagine like different circumstances or, you know, you know, if things were, were different or if I could change this, like this would look, I feel like those things are important for us to navigate and fight through and wrestle with and, you know, to, to sort of constantly numb those down. It feels like you almost anesthetize yourself yeah. into, into this dull space. Now yeah. I know it's not that simple. I, I realize again, you know, some of this is overly simplistic, but... Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what you have to wrestle with as an adult, right? Yeah, Because, you know, I was sure. talking to some people recently because, you know, I work in diversity, equity, inclusion. And so, you know, wokeness is sort of my chosen profession. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, Which um, I love, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, there are people who, you know, do get burnt out or, you know, they have kids and they kind of, the priorities kind of shift. And sure. even, you know, someone really famous like W. Du Bois... I didn't realize, but he was still alive in the 60s when the uh, civil rights movement was yeah. at its peak. And, you know, I was asking someone who's a historian and he was like, yeah, he just kind of he just kind of burned out. And, you know, that's something we 
do have to wrestle with. Yeah. Man. And how we choose not to get burnt out, I don't know, it's different for everyone. But I can understand why people become recluses and don't want to deal with anyone. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a natural tendency towards, especially if you've been through, let's say, traumatic events or circumstances, right? And, and let's say those, tr- those traumas are prolonged and extensive. Like there is a point where you, you feel like you've had enough. And so is, is the passing on of, or the, the embracing of hope, passing on the wisdom to a generation that has the energy maybe that has the zeal or, you know, is, is equipped in different ways. Maybe it's that, maybe it's taking a step back so that you can recharge for a season and then you're back in the fray, you know, and the, the hard part about making a hard and fast rule with this stuff is that every person is different and every timeline is different, every circumstance, you know? And so it almost becomes a, a micro to macro, like, I'm the person who needs to recharge micro so that I can then go into my community macro and, and affect change or, you know, God, I feel like we could go in a thousand more minutes on this. Yeah. 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 Guys, I mean, we can, there's a American adaptation in this movie called let me in. Oh, I didn't know that with, uh, with, uh, what's his face? The guy who did the bat, uh, the Batman with, uh, Robert Pattinson. That movie. Okay. There's a TV show. I didn't know that. I think it just got canceled. Uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably on Netflix after one season. Yeah. You know. Uh, all right, guys. We, we're an hour in. We can go for a long time. But we'll, we'll pause it here. We'll say, hey, be sure to catch us on all of the streaming platforms. Actually, I just found out that Stitcher is, is uh, closing up shop in oh, no. uh, August. So we will be on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. Find us there. Give us a like, follow, subscribe, leave us a five-star review. They count. They matter. Guys, we're glad that you joined us in the lab. Deep conversation. Join us next week. We're a bonus episode, Godzilla 1954, and then uh, The Conjuring, which is also terrific. So, guys, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you guys soon in the Horror Lab. Bye.